Section 19 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5. The Religious Conflict Merged in the Great War. Part 1. Of the causes contributing to arrest the great religious reaction of the 16th century, the most obvious was the failure of Philip II's scheme of European policy. The cardinal points of that scheme were the recovery of the Netherlands, the chastisement of England, and the subjection of France. About the beginning of the last decade of the century, all these achievements had, humanly speaking, become impossible. In the Netherlands, the United Provinces assumed the offensive two years before the efforts of Parma, diverted by Philip's policy and crippled by his jealousy, were quenched in death in 1592, and they had practically become an independent power more than half a century before they were acknowledged as such by Spain. As against England and her heretic queen, though Philip by no means thought to have staked everything upon the Grand Armada, yet with it the moment which seemed his had passed away. The English government no longer shrank from intervening effectively in France, while with Spain it began to dispute her own ports as well as the waters of the Old World and the New. Spain's reprisals in Ireland would have been feeble flashes, but for the unspeakable infelicity of England's position between them and native disaffection. Still, the prospect of a settlement permitting a free exercise of Catholic faith 1599, passed away as rapidly as it had presented itself. Essex's monstrous blunder only hastened his doom, and the defeat of the hopes founded by many English Catholics upon his wild plot in 1601 can hardly be reckoned among Rome's lost opportunities. Hardly better founded were the sanguine expectations which the Catholic, like other interests, persisted in concentrating upon the person of Queen Elizabeth's inevitable successor, 1603. It was an age of plots, and upon plots the more active and unscrupulous spirits among the English Roman Catholics had after all to fall back. They profited by neither main nor by, 1603, while the discovery of the gunpowder plot in 1605 and of the acquiescence in it of the head of the Jesuit organization in England, postponed indefinitely any mitigation of the recusancy laws. The exaction of the oath of allegiance denying the Pope's disposing power in 1606 not only extinguished all hopes of the conversion of James I, but induced Pope Paul V to intervene authoritatively against the acceptance of this test by the English Catholic clergy. The result was a controversy between King James and his apologists on the one side, and the redoubtable Bellarmine, 1607-12, on the other, which, like all such controversies, necessarily impeded the propaganda. Such conquests as Catholicism made in England during the next dozen years were made clandestinely and in the teeth of public opinion. Their intrinsic importance was small, though they included Queen Anne, but they helped to show the power of Spain, whose ambassador protected such agents of Rome as Luisa de Carvajal, 1613, at the very time when James I was gratifying popular feeling 
and his own balancing instincts by marrying his daughter to the Palatine. The crucial part of the religious conflict in Europe at the beginning of the last decade of the 16th century lay in the affairs of France. On the death, twelve days after his election of Pope Urban VII, the papal chair was occupied in December 1590 by Gregory XIV, Sfondrado, who adhered unhesitatingly to the policy of Philip II and the League. He could not reconcile himself to the accession to the throne of France of Vendôme, as he called Henry IV, and unscrupulously expended the treasure reserved by Sixtus V for the extreme needs of the Church on the hire of auxiliaries for the cause of orthodox monarchy. This enthusiasm, and the pressure put upon Henry IV by the tiers parti in France to abjure Protestantism, might, in 1591, have led to the establishment of the French Church as a really independent branch of the Catholic, had it not been for the inability of the Cardinal of Bourbon to assume the office of Patriarch. The interception of Pope Sixtus's letter to Philip II, begging him to relieve Paris and assume the sovereignty, November 1591, completed the unfolding of the situation. Mayenne, who had no desire that the crown should fall to Philip, overthrew the sixteen and began to base his calculations on the recognition of Henry IV. In December 1592, Parma died, and the time became ripe for Henry to take the step for which he had long been prepared. Meanwhile, after the brief reign of Innocent IX, Clement VIII had begun his pontificate, 1592-1605. Though no friend of Spain, he at first proceeded cautiously. On the 25th July, 1593, Henry IV formally abjured Protestantism, and the tide of national and anti-Spanish feeling, marked by the publication of the Satir Minipe, fully set in. On the 27th of February, 1594, followed his coronation, which might almost have seemed a defiance of Rome. But though Clement VIII still hesitated, it was becoming more and more clear to him, as it formerly had to Sixtus V, that France must not be allowed to cut herself adrift from Rome. Unabsolved by the Holy See, Henry of Navarre, in the opinion of both the Sorbonne and the Jesuits, could not claim to be king of France. In the opinion of Jean Chastel, whose design upon Henry's life was discovered in time, he was a tyrant whom it was right to remove. The result was the banishment of the Jesuits from France in 1594, which strained the situation still further. Henry IV, who at the beginning of 1595 felt himself strong enough as a national sovereign to declare war against Spain, was at heart anxious to gain the goodwill of the Pope, and the Pope in his turn resented the constant pressure upon him of Spanish influence. Curiously enough, the Jesuits, though exiled by Henry IV, showed a sense of favors to come, and some influential members of the order exerted themselves for the absolution of the king. When this was at last granted, 17th of September, 1595, Philip of Spain's hope of mastering France was finally extinguished, and before he died he concluded peace, May 1598. The Edict of Nantes, which shortly before, April 1598, 
established the rights of the French Protestants on much the same basis as the earlier pacifications obtained and undone in the course of the religious wars, was at first received very wrathfully by Clement VIII, who even threatened to recall his absolution of the king. But the latter took little account of these vaporings, being well aware of the interest which, quite apart from the more special question of its claims on Ferrara, the papacy had in keeping France strong as against Spain. In the years which followed, Henry IV on the whole successfully preserved the balance on which his tenure of the throne seemed primarily to depend. His chief counsellors were chosen from both sides, a natural preponderance being allowed to the Catholic majority. After a time, 1603, he gave his consent to the readmission of the Jesuits into France, and even accepted a Jesuit father as his confessor. Nor had the order any corporate or collective responsibility for the crime which put an end to his life. Yet his real sentiments and sympathies remained Protestant to the last, and his foreign policy was only biding its time in the time of France, who, however marvellous her powers of recuperation, could not be herself again at once. Thus he gradually laid down the lines of that policy by which France ultimately succeeded in overthrowing the predominant influence of the House of Habsburg in Europe, and the House of Habsburg had by this time once more identified itself in both its branches with the cause of Rome. Undoubtedly the Catholic reaction had now more than ever to reckon with an adversary whom a generation since it had suited Lutheran as well as Catholic statesmanship to ignore. Calvinism, now a militant creed, had determined to bring to an issue the struggle against the common foe with whom the Lutherans were already again on speaking terms. The center of these aspirations and schemes was Heidelberg, whence communication was easy to Switzerland, the Netherlands, and France. Here Frederick IV, during the period of his independent government from 1592 to 1610, remained true to the policy of his uncle and guardian, John Kashimir, though himself by no means except in his potations, an extraordinary man, Frederick the Fourth fell in with the designs and intrigues of his advisers and agents, among whom Christian I of Anhalt, himself a convert to Calvinism, was the chief. Between the half-mechanical impetus of the Catholic reaction and the apathy of the Lutherans, they foresaw and by their efforts helped to make inevitable the Great War. In this spirit, Anhalt conceived, and afterwards, though on a much reduced scale, carried into effect the plan of the Protestant Union. To this revival of combatant energy and its most determined adversaries, the Catholic movement no longer opposed its former strength and intensity. The very right arm of Rome, the Order of Jesus itself, was lamed by internal dissensions. Already Sixtus V had cherished projects of reforming the order and reducing, if not suppressing, its political influence. But it was in Spain the true home, as it was the original source of the order, that its disintegration began. The appointment to the generalship of the Neapolitan Claudio Acquaviva, 1581-1615, had excited much discontent among the Spanish Jesuits, who began to think of emancipating themselves in some measure from his control. 
In return, the general, himself a man in his prime, superseded many of the fathers of more advanced age in the Spanish college by younger men, and the consequence was a kind of revolt of the adherents of the Ancien Regime. This movement, led by Enriquez and Mariana, attracted the goodwill of Philip II, never at heart a friend of the Jesuits. At Rome, however, the imperturbable Aquaviva obtained from Gregory XIV, 1590-91, a decision against the contentions of the Spanish faction. But under Clement VIII, the Spanish malcontents succeeded in bringing about the summons of a general congregation of the order as supreme over the general himself in 1592. And notwithstanding Aquaviva's success in influencing the results of the discussions of this congregation, he was obliged to submit to an adverse papal ruling. The effect of these changes was slighter than had been either hoped or feared, but the order inflicted a serious moral loss upon itself by the internal divisions which provoked Pope Clement's reforms of its system. They were followed in 1599 by the same Pope's courteous contravention of one of the most cherished principles of the order by pressing the purple upon the great Jesuit controversialist Bellarmine, the first volume of whose magnum opus had been placed upon the index by Sixtus V because of its refusal to acknowledge the Pope's immediate lordship over the universe. The death of Clement VIII in 1605 put a term to the attempt, largely inspired by Spain, to undermine the unique position which the Jesuits had hitherto maintained, but the struggle had been severe and prejudicial to their credit in the Catholic world. But there was yet another aspect under which the great order seemed more especially, in the judgment of Spaniards, to fall away from its former self-consistency. When, in 1581, Aquaviva authoritatively promulgated the educational course, Ratio Studiorum, of his society, and therein showed an evident desire to relieve it from the duty of adherence to pure Thomist dogma, a great shock was given to the conservatism of the schools, and a quarrel prepared itself between Jesuit teaching and the traditions of Spanish theology, as especially cherished by the Dominicans. This quarrel came to an outbreak when the Jesuit Molina at Coimbra, in his Concordia Gratiae et Liberi Arbitrii, 1588, pushed to an extreme the doctrine of free will as formulated by the Council of Trent. Other Jesuits wrote about this time on the same subject, but Molina's deductions were the most ambitious and the most complete. The members of the order were by no means unanimous in his favor. But the large majority, including the general, Aquaviva, took his side. As a matter of course, the Dominicans began to crusade against Molinism, in which Banes was their leader. Equally, of course, the Inquisition, now under Manrique, set out its claim to intervene, and a serious crisis seemed imminent in the history of the order. Denounced as heterodox in Spain, the Jesuits gave so much offense in France by their political theories, and the supposed consequences of these for the safety of the sovereign and the welfare of the state, as to be about this time, 1594, expelled from the country. Aquaviva accordingly contrived to have the settlement of the controversy removed to Rome itself, 
where it passed through several interesting and perilous phases, to be finally quashed by Paul V in 1606. Half a century afterwards it was asserted on the one side, but solemnly denied on the other, that this pope had drawn up a bull in support of the pure Thomistic doctrine. End of section 19